God, we're so grateful for your loving care and mercy. Again, for this beautiful Sabbath day that we've had together with these dear ones. And again, God, as we begin this meeting, Lord, we pray, again, come, take us out of us and put Jesus in us, that, God, that we can respond to life like you would respond to life. And again, Lord, may thy spirit be present in each heart. And, God, as these words are spoken today, may they not be mine, but they may be yours, spoken through me. Bless, we pray, in our meeting right now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I would like to make a statement. I usually don't take photographs on Sabbath. Somebody brought this to my attention. And uh, I believe that it's, uh, if you were out, uh, you know, just for an afternoon and photographing, uh, I wouldn't be involved with it. But I felt that none of us will be together just like we are now. And I felt that I wanted to capture that moment and take it back and put it in our magazine. I wanted you to let you know that I, I don't uh, just run around with a camera. And in fact, I don't, all the time, about the only time I ever use it is in a meeting like this. The three angels' messages, what are they? As I said last night, we, we uh, have used them as kind of a, a motto or an emblem. And uh, we put them on front of about everything that we do. We've got them in our churches, in the back, in the front, in the front of the pulpit, behind the pulpit, in front of the church. We print them on everything that we print. I mean, they're there. But the tragedy that I find that very few Seventh-day Adventists I really understand what those angels really mean. And so it is important that today we come to an understanding of what they really mean. Let's read the, these messages together. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him that made heaven and the earth, and the... What's the next? Sea and the fountains of waters. And then the, the second angel's message. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them saying, With a loud voice, If any man hear it, worship the beast in his image and receive his mark and his forehead in his name. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture in the cup of indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receive the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the, what's next? Faith of Jesus. And that may be the most important part of all those verses, who have the faith of Jesus. Let us begin at the beginning, uh, the sixth verse, because that is, all of these verses are very familiar. If you've been to Adventist schools, you've memorized them and and uh, you've heard them again and again. You've re read them. But now let's really uh, ask God to lead us to know what these words mean to us because they're very important words. 
I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Now, there are three parts to that first angel's message. The first part is this. The first part is an everlasting gospel. The second part is to proclaim a judgment hour. The third part is a call to worship God who created the world in six days and the rest of the seventh day. You see, these messages sounded in the, in the 1843 and 1844 experience of the midnight cry. And these people understood what that message meant and that which gave it its dynamics, which gave it its power. It became a catalyst to turn people on to the great power of God in their life. And uh, as we began to see what the everlasting gospel is. Now, before I, we go into explanations, let me go to Ellen White. Let us go to Ellen White and let us get a definition of what these messages really are. On page 17... Of uh, volume six of the testimonies, Ellen White. Ellen White has this to say. The three angels of Revelation 14 are represented as flying in the midst of heaven, symbolizing the work of those who proclaim the first, second, and third angels' message. All are linked together. The evidences of abiding, ever-living truth of these grand messages that mean so much to the church and that have awakened, have awakened intense opposition from the religious world are not extinct. Satan is constantly seeking to cast a shadow about these messages so that the people of God shall not clearly discern their import their time and place, but they live and they are to exert their power upon our religious experience while time shall last. So these angels' messages then will, when they're preached in its entirety, in their fullness, will raise a tremendous opposition from the religious world. Now evidently, because there is no opposition today, or very little opposition to Adventists today, is because we haven't preached these messages. Would you accept that? Mm -hmm. And we can't, we can't preach them unless we understand them, what they really mean to us as a people, as a church. And with that, I would like to turn also to um, the uh, evangelism, the book of evangelism, 196. And we read this inspired statement. It says, the theme of greatest importance is the third angel's message, embracing the messages of the first and second angel. All should understand the truths contained in these messages and demonstrate them in daily life. For this is essential to salvation. We shall have to study earnestly, prayerfully, in order to understand these grand truths and our power to learn and comprehend will be taxed to the utmost. So it says that these messages must be demonstrated in the daily life, for this is essential to salvation. 
And as we go to volume 5, 383, we read this important statement. The third angel flying in the midst of heaven and heralding the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus represents our work. The message loses none of its force in the angel's onward flight, for John sees it increasing in strength and power until the whole earth is lightened with his glory. The course of commandment-keeping people, of God's commandment-keeping people, is onward and ever upward. And the message of truth that we bear must go to nations and tongues and people. Soon it will go with a loud voice, and the earth will be lightened with its glory. Are we preparing for this great outpouring of the Spirit of God? Volume 5, and that is 383 of the Testimonies. And then this statement from Review and Herald, November 19, 1908, the third angel's message is to lighten the earth with its glory, but only those who have withstood temptation in the strength of the mighty one will, per will be permitted to act a part as it swells to the loud cry. So only those that understand it by experience and are practicing it in the light will, will be part of it when it finishes. And so with those definitions, and maybe one just more, in volume 7a of the commentary on 978 and 979 it says Christ is coming the second time with power unto salvation to prepare human beings for this event he has sent the first and second and third angels messages these angels represent those who receive the truth and with power open the gospel to the world now, they open the gospel to the world because of the experience they have in Jesus Christ. And then in volume 6 again of the testimonies, we read this inspired statement on 406. The blessed hope of the second appearing of Christ with its solemn realities needs to be often presented to the people. Looking for the soon appearing of our Lord will lead us to regard earthly things as emptiness and nothingness. The battle of Armageddon is soon to be fought. He on whose vesture is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords is soon to lead forth the armies of heaven. We are to throw aside our narrow selfish plans, remembering that we are, have a work of the largest magnitude and of the highest importance. In doing this work, we are sounding the first and second and third angel's messages and are thus being prepared for the coming of that other angel from heaven who is to lighten the earth with his glory. So with that, I think that we must draw a a conclusion that the angels now are only symbols, as we are told there in volume 6, page 17. They're only symbols that the God has used to try to teach us that these angels represent people who have an experience in Jesus Christ. The three angels of Revelation 14 are represented as flying in the midst of heaven, symbolizing the work of those 
who proclaim the first, second, and third angel's messages all are linked together. So friends, as we approach this study from that position, that you are those angels symbolized there by flying through the air, you are symbolized those angels are flying representing the speed in which the message will go when the experience comes. Do you see? And as we begin to look at these messages now in detail, let's turn again to the 14th chapter. And it says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth in every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. What is the everlasting gospel? Anybody know? Is it something that God invented for our day? No, he invented it for... Adam and Eve and all their children down through the ages of time. When God gave that, when God stood there in the Garden of Eden that day, He gave them the everlasting gospel. And if you will, with me, let's go back and review that day, if we can, for a moment. Let's start with creation, because I think it's important that that's where we begin. We find that God had decided, God the Son, God the Father, had decided that they were going to create a world another world, a beautiful world, and they were going to put people in that world that would represent them, that would look like them, would talk like them, and act like them. And uh, you remember, as the plan of, uh, of creation went forward, it was that plan, as you read in the story of redemption, it was that plan that began to infuriate Lucifer because he was not included in that plan. And he wanted to be God, and, and God had limited him because he was a created being, and he couldn't create. And uh, as we know, he was cast out to this earth. And uh, immediately, we are told in the story of redemption, the book story of redemption, that God the Father and the Son immediately went uh, ahead with the, the plans for the creation of this world. And then the devil was cast out. As the devil was cast out, he came to this world. And, of course, as we begin to look at creation now, we find that God has spake, and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And, and after six days of creation, he had a beautiful world. He had beautiful creatures. He had beautiful birds. He had beautiful everything. But he needed now something to be the caretaker of his garden. And so he, he fashioned a beautiful man. And after he had fashioned him out of the dust of the ground, he looked down at him and he didn't move because he's, he wasn't a breathing, living being. And so God knelt down and put his mouth to this beautiful being and breathed into his own breath. And instantly, as the breath of God took, came in contact with the, with the body of Adam, I mean, the heart began to pump its, his blood through his arterial system until it reached his brain, and suddenly his eyes began to flutter, and he looked up into the face of God. And I'm sure his first words were, Who are you? And then he looked at himself and said, And who am I? And as God reaches down, and he picks up this giant of a man, and he raises him up to his feet, now, a lot of speculation on how big a man he was, and I don't know, and I don't suppose there's anybody really knows how big he was, but he was big. If he was twice as tall as us, mathematicians tell us that he was probably weighed between 1,800 and 2,000 pounds, because he was not only twice as tall, but he was twice as this way and twice this way, you see. 
And uh, so that was quite a man. And uh, by the way, God says that we're going to grow up like cows in the stall. As we eat of the tree of life, that uh, God will restore us to the original stature that he meant us to be. And as he raises this beautiful being up, and he puts his arm around Adam, and he takes him a tour through the beautiful garden that he's made. And after they finish the tour, I can hear Adam say, But God, there is two of everything, but there's only one of me. And God said, Well, I have a plan too that you uh, that will solve that problem and so he laid this beautiful man down again and he put him to sleep and he took a rib from his side and he created the most beautiful creature of all he made woman and again as Adam wakes up I mean he raises this beautiful man to his feet he puts Eve's hand in Adam's and he pronounces the first wedding ceremony and uh, uh, as he, the ceremony is finished, the sun is beginning to lean heavily upon the beautiful garden trees. And uh, he sends them away and he stands in the shadow of the sixth day and watches this beautiful people that he has made disappear into his beautiful garden. And I can see them there, can you, walking hand in hand together. Uh, stopping here and there to talk and discuss some beautiful little thing that they have noticed. And God said, it is good. Everything that he has made, it is good. And he is especially pleased because of what he has just made. He's made a beautiful man, a beautiful woman, and he has made them absolutely perfect. And he's put them together as man and wife to take care of the garden. And he has also commanded them to replenish the earth, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And every day was a beautiful day, a perfect day. Uh, they rose in the morning from their rest with vigor and vitality and strength and enthusiasm. And as they worked through the day, they worked side by side, training the vines, naming the flowers, naming the birds, the bees, the animals, everything that came to them. They gave them a name. And it was a, a precious work in which they took great responsibilities and they had also been instructed, if you read the book, uh, um, the book um, Story of Redemption, you'll find that they had been instructed by angels that they should not ever separate, that they should always be together because they were told of the problem that had happened in heaven, how that Lucifer and his angels had been cast out. And to reassure man and to instruct man with his beautiful garden home and how he should take care of it and the mysteries of creation, the Creator himself came every day and instructed them, uh, uh, gave them instructions about the mysteries uh, that they were seeing day by day. And every day, wherever they were in the garden, they didn't have a clock, they didn't have a watch, they didn't need one. God had it into the mind. They knew that in the cool of the day, that they were meet to meet Jesus Christ. They were meet their Creator. And you can see them now, wherever they were, uh, hand in hand, dressed in sh and shrouded with their beautiful robes of light. They would race through the garden, leaping and jumping. And I can hear the lilting laughter of Eve as they approached that sacred place where they always met their God. And there they, there they cast themselves at the feet of their Creator, and again, the great God of the universe would reach down and pick up that giant of a man and that beautiful woman. 
He'd put his arms around Eve and his arms around Adam and they'd walk together in the cool of the day and God would instruct them about all the beauties and all the mysteries. I can hear Adam stopping uh, before a giant sequoia tree. I don't know if you've ever seen those beautiful trees. I spent many years of my young life falling them, falling those giant redwoods. Also owned a sawmill at that time. And many times those trees that took 4,000 years to grow in a few hours, we've got them laying on the ground. But let me tell you, I can see Adam standing before one of those giant trees towering hundreds of feet into the air and looking up and say, God, I don't know how you get the moisture from the root up there. And the great creator of the universe stops and explains a great engineering feat that baffles the minds of engineers today. Oh, it must have been a wonderful time, don't you think? To be able to walk with God and listen to him explain things. And friends, we're going to have that privilege again. Did you know that? We're going to have the privilege of walking with God in the new creation, in the Eden made new. And we're going to be able to listen to Jesus who created the world. We're going to listen to his explanations of those great mysteries in which it baffles the minds of the greatest minds today. And this went on day after day after day. They were learning and enjoying the marvelous association and fellowship with God and angels. And then came the tragic day, as we know, in which, unfortunately, Adam let his Eve get away from him. We sometimes want to blame Eve, but Adam, as the prince of this world, evidently was not careful And he let his wife stray away from him. And we find that she stands before the forbidden tree. And suddenly a beautiful voice is talking with her. And as the conversation develops, we find that the devil is casting a reflection upon what God has said. And he begins to tell her, listen, the reason God doesn't want you to eat of this fruit is because he doesn't want you to be like him. If you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. And you'll know everything. And right there, Eve began to lose her trust in God. And finally, uh, that trust was came to a point in, where she actually reached out and took that fruit. And uh, she ate that fruit. And immediately she lost her righteousness. And she began to lose her God-likeness. And now we see her running through the garden with her arms loaded with fruit because now she is so deceived that she wants to share this new light that God that she feels that God has given her in uh, in this uh, uh, this fruit that she's eaten. And so Adam sees her coming, and he sees that fruit in her arms, and instantly he knows what has happened. He is now married to a sinner. And he turns his back on God and said, God, I would rather be married to this beautiful woman than I would be with you. And he ate and became a sinner too. The reason I tell you this story, is, my friends, is because it has a close relationship to the three angel messages. It has a close relationship to the everlasting gospel. You see, man lost his righteousness because he lost his trust in God. And the only way that man can be restored in righteousness is that his trust be restored. And so we must go back to where sin came into the world and find out the reason for sin 
And as we explore the reasons for sin, we see that man failed because he lost his trust, his faith that he was created with. He lost it, and when he lost trust in God, he lost the righteousness of God. And the restoration of man must always begin back where the problem started. So before man can be restored to Eden, he must be first restored in trust or faith. And when he is restored in faith and trust, then he can be restored in righteousness. And when he's restored in righteousness, he can be restored in God-likeness. And when he's restored in God-likeness, again he can love as God made him to love. See, God made him to love perfectly. And when he lost his trust in God, he lost that perfect love. And when Adam and Eve, now as we see that God has come into the garden once again, because at this moment all the universe has almost come to a, to a standstill. The whole universe now knows that something desperately went wrong. The animals, the birds, everything is, is feeling the effects of what has happened. And the great God, the creator of the world, now is again walking in the garden. But it's not Adam and Eve racing to see God in the cool of the day. It's God walking through the garden trying to find two sinners in the chill of the day. And finally from their hiding place they come not dressed in beautiful robes of light in which God had made them, but now dressed in fig leaves. And immediately, as God questions them, you see the effects of sin are already there because Adam blames it on Eve and Eve blames it on the serpent. And we find that man has been doing that ever since that man refuses to re receive the blame for anything and he wants to put the blame someplace else. And so we find that in the restoration of man before God can bring them back to the garden home once again, that man has to be restored in faith. And when he's restored in faith, he can be restored in righteousness. God can trust them. If you have Jesus' faith, then you can have Jesus' righteousness. And that's why righteousness by faith, my friends, is such an important doctrine. Because it has to do with the restoration of all of us to the Garden of Eden. And unless we understand it by experience, unless we really have that marvelous truth of Jesus' faith in our life, then if we do not have it, we cannot have in the righteousness of Christ because He can't trust us with it. And then there is no restoration in godliness. And then that means that you can't love as God made you to love. You see. And what happened in Pentecost was that they had made everything right with their fellow man. They had made everything right with God. And now they had received the faith of Jesus in their lives. And instantly as the faith of Jesus came in contact with their lives, then the righteousness of Christ came down. And they were restored in God-likeness. And now they could respond to life like Jesus would respond to life. And they were loving just like Jesus loves. You see that? Why? Because they had Jesus' faith. They had Jesus' righteousness. They had Jesus' life because they had Jesus' power. And they had Jesus' love. And they could respond just like Jesus did. 
And it, that, that righteousness, that faith, takes all fear out of the life. There's no more fear. And this is why Peter could throw open the door and all of them could, could tumble out in the streets and go to the most dangerous place that they could go is right to the temple steps. There was no more fear in them. You see, up until that moment, they had bolted the door because of fear of the Jews. But now the fear is gone and they're out in the streets. And they stayed in the streets. And that is why the gospel went to the whole world, my friends, is at a, such a short period of time because of that faith that Jesus had put into them and with that faith came his righteousness and that faith came, brought his life and that faith brought his power and that faith brought his love. You see that? Remember what it says in the 12th verse? Here are the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have what? Faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus, my friends, is the catalyst it which gives the impetus to the, to, the, to, the, to the life which brings righteousness, which brings power, which brings life, which brings love. And the reason that this church has been impotent to carry this message to the world is because it didn't understand the simple gospel, the everlasting gospel. This gospel has been in every age and there have always been people in every age that understood it by experience. Abraham understood it. Noah understood it. We find as we look down through the period of time, different people in every age, the prophets of every age understood it and experienced it. When we come to the apostles, we find they experienced it. In every era of time, there have been people that have experienced the everlasting gospel. My friends, in short, it is the victory over every hereditary and every cultivated weakness in the life, in the character. And daily, men and women, with this experience, with the faith of Jesus in them, are developing a character, a, a character like Jesus can. And that is the everlasting gospel. And my friends, that gospel must come to the world once again. Do you believe that? That gospel must go to the world. And the only way it can go to the world is by an experience in you and I and others like us around the world. When we understand that experience, it takes all fear out of the life. It makes us a living witness to the power of God in what God can do in human beings. And it makes people look at the people that have it and say, I want to be like that. I want to, I want to, I want to live like that. I want that kind of a lifestyle. Then as we go on, we find that it says, Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour His judgment has come. We find that the judgment hour had a specific meaning in 1843 and 4, and especially in 1844, because it was announcing the judgment of the dead. And uh, the, 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 the midnight cry people, the Millerite people, preached with all the vigor and enthusiasm that they, they could muster under the experience in the Holy Spirit because they believed with all in heart and soul they were going to soon see Jesus. And that's what gave the, the tremendous power to their message. And they what do they preach? They preach the judgment has come. And uh, friends, let me tell you that the judgment, uh, that was announcing the judgment of the living, of the dead. 
But these messages must sound again, we are told, as we read in Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 104 and 105, Ellen White, under an inspiration, had this to say. It says, the first and second messages were given in 1843 and 4, and we are now under the proclamation of the third. But all three of the messages are still to be proclaimed. It is just as essential now as ever before that they shall be repeated to those who are seeking for truth. By pen and voice we are to sound the proclamation, showing their order, and the application of the prophecies uh, to bring us to the third angel's message. There cannot be a third without a first and second. These messages we are to give to the world in publications and discourses showing in the line of prophetic history the things that have been and the things that will be. So, as we see, there cannot be a third until there is a first and second. And all through the ages of time, since 1844, God has tried to swell the third angel's message to the loud cry, but tragically the church has held it back. And tragically we find as we study the history of this message, we find that to a great degree, because the leadership and the pastors did not understand that <coughs> message, that they kept the message from going to the people. Now, we find that, as I said last night, and I'll review it for a moment here, is we find that as the church began to move away from the, the 1844 experience, and the, the, the doctrines of the church were, were fastened down by the spirit of prophecy, as we discussed it last night, and as we began to move forward and, and souls were being added to the church, and we came to, to, to a point where God saw it was necessary that some organization be formed. And with this organization, immediately there became a tendency to move away from the experience and to develop policies and to lean on the arm of flesh. And finally this thing progressed to so far that the God saw that there had to be something done or the church would lose its impetus completely and God sent a Wagner and Jones, uh, and along with him he put Ellen White, and the three of them went from church to church, and from camp meeting to camp meeting, preaching what you're listening to here uh, this day. And they, what was the message? It was victory over sin through the power of Christ. In the very center of that message was the nature of Christ. As you study the Wagner and Joan messages, you will find that in the very center of all the things, that Jesus was like us. That Jesus did come down and take the fallen human nature, and in doing so, he was able, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to keep from sin and setting before us a perfect example of perfect living through the keeping of a perfect law. And... As we, we see the tremendous emphasis that God placed upon that beautiful everlasting gospel message that these men preached and Ellen White preached. And the, the torrent of resistance that broke loose kept it from really happening. In fact, if you read here in the... Um, in volume 7a... Uh, the commentary. It's 
784. Uh, it says, The time of test is just upon us, for the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning Redeemer. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth. Now, that was written in 1892. She wrote that, that the fourth angel had already come down to do his work, but we find because of the resistance, the tremendous resistance that was received, that that angel was unable to do his work, and that angel had to go back. But let me tell you, friends, that that angel is coming again. Do you believe that? And the emphasis that that fourth angel give will strengthen the third angel's message because it is an experience in Jesus Christ. Victory over sin. And as we, as we look at this now, we find that there cannot be a third until there's a first and second. And as we review these things, the first angel's message was the everlasting gospel. It was a judgment hour message. And it was preaching something else. It was preaching... My friends, that to worship God who made heaven and earth in six days and rest of the seventh day. See, now you, you see at the time of these angels' message, 43 and 44, you'll find that evolution, Darwin's theories, had already permeated the entire uh, scientific ed, uh, institutions of that day. And their message was also preaching a message that God is the creator of the world. Now, as these messages have to be reinstated, they have to come again. The first and second angels' messages have to come again. And as they come, we must also understand that we must preach the victory over sin message, which is the everlasting gospel. We must preach that there is a judgment soon to come. And we must preach that God made the world in six days and rested the seventh day. And Ellen White says that that will come. That message will come to the church again. There cannot be a third until there is a first and second. Let us move on to the eighth verse in the, the second angel's message was back there in 1843 was Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her God. In the book Early Writings, uh, page 277, inspiration uh, has this to say. <clears throat> I saw angels hurrying to and fro in heaven, descending to the earth and again ascending to heaven, preparing for the fulfillment of some important event. Then I saw another mighty angel commissioned to descend to the earth to unite his voice with the third angel and give power and force to his message. Great power and glory were imparted to that angel, and as he descended, the earth was lightened with his glory. The light which attended this angel penetrated everywhere. As he cried mightily with a strong voice, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, is, is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. The message of the fall of Babylon as given by the second angel is repeated with additional mention of the corruptions which have entered the churches since 1844. The work of this angel comes in at the right time to join the last great work of the third angel, message as it swells to the loud cry. And the people of God are thus prepared 
to stand in the hour of temptation which they are soon to meet. I saw great light resting upon them, and they united to fearlessly proclaim the third angel's message. Angels were sent to aid the mighty angel from heaven. I heard voices which seemed to sound everywhere, Come out of her, my people, that she be not partakers of her sins, that she receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. This message seemed to be an addition to the third angel's message, joining it, it did it as the midnight cry joined the second angel's message in 1844. So, that fourth angel, friends, is ready to do his work. And the only thing that holds it back is us. Because he has to have us. He has to have people that are totally and completely surrendered to the will of God before he can work, you see. Now remember that in the 18th chapter and the 21st verse, we have an interesting uh, statement here. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. Now, the mighty angel is also revealed over here in the 10th chapter. <clears throat> the 10th chapter and the first verse, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. Ellen White, I believe it is in, Revel, in uh, volume 7 of the commentary, uh, 1074, says that that mighty angel was who? Christ. Christ himself. So, we see a mighty angel in the 10th chapter, the first verse, and I see also a mighty angel in the 18th chapter, the 21st verse. And I believe that in the first verse of the 10th chapter, we see this mighty angel, which is Christ. And what does he do? He brings down the, the scroll just far enough for them to preach the first two angel messages. In volume 6 again, in volume 6, page... Um, 17, it says, The light we have received upon the third angel's message is the true light. The mark of the beast is exactly what it has been proclaimed to be. Not all in regard to this manner is yet understood, nor will it be understood until the unrolling of the scroll. But a most solemn work is to be accomplished in our world. The Lord commands his servants is cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Show my people their transgression, the house of Jacob their sins. And so uh, uh, what I see here is that the scroll was brought down. It says here, the mark of the beast is exactly what it is proclaimed to be. Not all in re regard to this matter is yet understood, nor will it be understood until the unrolling of the scroll. Now what I see is Jesus when he handed the little book to John and said, eat it up. In understanding of the Millerite movement that Jesus unrolled the scroll for the first two angels' messages. But the scroll has to come down all <coughs> the way so that we can give the third angel's message. Do you see that? It has to come all the way down so we can give the third angel. So I see in the, 20, in the 18th chapter, the 21st verse, I see Jesus standing there with a mighty millstone about to cast it into the sea, which, uh, which announces the close of probation, by the way. 
And this mighty angel, Jesus Christ, is going to bring the scroll all the way down because you read that mighty angel is in the first four or five verses of Revelation 18. And when you begin to see that the scroll has to come all the way down before the entire message can go to the Word. And she says there that this message must be understood. And it can only be understood as you're taught by the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? It can only be understood as you're taught by the Holy Spirit. Now, as we go back now to the, to the 14th chapter, because we find that the fourth angel now joins the, the other three angels and brings a tremendous emphasis to those three angels' messages, and the cry goes out again, Come out of her, my people, and be not partakers of her sin just as it was given back in 1843 and 4. And when that time comes, my friends, that will, uh, that will culminate the shaking in the Adventist church because that call is only given by sealed people, people who have the seal of the living God. Now, what is the seal? Because there are many people that probably don't understand what the seal is. The seal is... It is settling into the truth intellectually and spiritually so you cannot be moved. You can find that in Volume 4 of the Commentary 1161. She says the seal is a settling into the truth intellectually and spiritually so no one can change you. you you'll accept death rather than change. And uh, that, that, that seal is, a, is the character of Christ perfectly reproduced in you. It has something to do with the Sabbath because... These people have learned to keep the Sabbath absolutely perfect. They have not let their minds run rampant in all kinds of things during those Sabbath hours. They have come to meet God on the, when the sun sets on Friday night. They have come there with their families around them and gathered them around the altar of God. And they have, pre they have presented their family to God. And they have been in a state of worship through these Sabbath hours. And as they worshiped God upon the Sabbath, as they came to the close of the Sabbath, then they dedicated them, their families again to God as they entered upon the new week. The altar of of God was in their homes. And this is why it's so important that there be an altar there. And friends, I've found very few Seventh-day Adventist homes that have an altar. Oh, it's a, it's a movable altar. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. But my friends, the altar of God must be there every morning and every evening and all through the day. What do you say? There must be an altar. And uh, in that altar is a sacred place. Where Adam and Eve ran into the presence of God, there was an altar there. <clears throat> and they worshipped. And there must be an altar. You must be in an attitude of worship of the great God of heaven. And so, as we, we look at this, this, um, this uh, second angel's message, we must see that that second angel's message sounds again. When it sounds, it's re-emphasized by the fourth angel. And the call is, come out, come out. And it's given by people who now have received the seal of the living God. Their characters have, are now resembling the character of Jesus. And they can be trusted with that power. They can be trusted with that seal. And God looks down and knows 
that as he puts that seal into their minds, that their, their characters are now fixed for eternity. And it is not that you couldn't change, it is because you have followed the commands of God so long that you wouldn't change. You see that? And let me tell you, friends, we better be preparing to give that call to the world to come out because if we're not preparing our own lives to give that call, it won't be long until we'll find ourselves out of, the, out of this message and out of, out of the church. You may go through the ritualism. You may go through the, 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 the church on Sabbath. You may pay your offerings, but let me tell you in early writings what Ellen White saw. In page 56 of uh, early writings, she saw this tragedy. She said, I, I turned to look at the company who were still bowed before the throne. They did not know that Jesus had left it. In other words, they didn't know that Jesus had moved from the, holy, uh, from the most holy back to the holy place in preparation to come to the outer court. Satan appeared to be by the throne trying to carry on the work of God. I saw them look up to the throne and pray, Father, give us thy spirit. And Satan would then breathe on them an unholy influence. In it there was light and much power, but no sweet love, joy, or peace. Satan's object was to keep them deceived and to draw back and deceive God's children. And friends, that's a frightening th picture. Do you get it? People still continue to go on through the ritualism and going to church and Sabbath school and going through the, 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 the traditions of the church and the rituals of the church. But, and their prayers are answered by Satan. And they think they're all right when they're all wrong, completely wrong. So it's a, it's a, it's a dangerous thing, my friends, to not respond to the Spirit of God. Because if we don't respond to the Spirit of God, we'll respond to that other spirit and not even know that we responded to it. It says in Testimonies to Ministers 507... It says, it was by confession and forsaking of sin, by earnest prayer and consecration of themselves to God, the early disciples prepared themselves for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Only those that are living up to all the light they have will receive greater light. Unless we are daily advancing in the exemplifications of active Christian virtues, we will not recognize the manifestation of the Holy Spirit of the latter reign. It may be falling on hearts all around us, and we will not discern it nor receive it. So these people who keep praying and going through the ritual, I mean, what happens is that they don't know the latter rain is fall. And they call the latter rain fanaticism. And they turn to God's people that have been had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they turn upon them and accuse them of being fanatics and causing trouble in the church. Tragedy. And so, dear ones, as we come to this tragic moment, Babylon is just about fallen. Now, I know that many, some Seventh-day Adventists, are accusing us, uh, the church, of being Babylon. But friends, it is not Babylon, never will be Babylon. You see, the, what we have to, have to understand is this, is that, that, the, those that stay in Laodicea will finally go to Babylon. But God has as much to say about the Laodicean condition as about the, about the, the Babylonians. Do you realize that? 
What happens to those that stay in Laodicea? Where do they go? They get spewed out of the mouth of God. They're spewed right into battle. Because they have never prepared their character and their mind to go through the tribulation, to do the time of trial that lies just ahead of us. And let me, friends, lay it on your heart today. There is an, uh, this is the hour. We must make the preparation. If we don't, we're going to be lost. We're going to be completely swept away by, by the deceptions that will sweep through the earth. the earth. Remember, it said it was by confession and forsaking of sin. By earnest prayer and consecration of themselves to God, the early disciples prepared themselves for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Then listen, only those that are living up to all the light they have will receive greater light. And so this is one of the areas that we want to watch at, walk, walk, look at very carefully because if we're violating truth in any area, in just the slightest degree, to the dotting of the eye or the crossing of the teeth, if we're violating the truth in any way, we will not recognize the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the latter rain. It'll be falling on hearts all around us. And it says, living up to all the light they have and daily advancing in the exemplifications of active Christian virtues. There is no standing still in the Christian life. Am I right? You can't stand still. If you're standing still, you're going backwards because the current will take you right away. We've got to be daily advancing in, in the exemplifications of active Christian virtues in the life day by day. And the only way that can happen, my friends, is through study of the Word of God and through prayer and memorization of Scripture. And this fastens us into that relationship because Christ is the Word. And as we study the Word of God, we are refreshed by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as we merge our will with God's will, our mind becomes God's mind, our thoughts become God's thoughts, our life becomes God's. And then He will clothe us with a garment of His righteousness. And friends, we need that garment, don't we? If we're going to get out of Laodicea, we've got to get away from our nakedness. And we're naked without that garment, that garment of righteousness. And the tragedy is that Laodicea doesn't even know they're naked. Let us move on to the third angel's message because we won't spend much time here because that, that, those verses 9 through 11 are the greatest, the greatest warning ever recorded in Scripture. I mean, you read it. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, the receive the mark in his forehead and his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture in the cup of his indignation, and shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angel and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receive the mark of his name. Never a warning like it anywhere else in Scripture like that warning. And friends, that if we don't have the everlasting gospel, what is we portrayed here in these verses will be our part. If we don't understand the, the, the first two angels' messages, the warning in the third angel message will be our part. We'll be cast away. And we won't even know what the latter rain is all about. We'll call it fanaticism. Now, in summary, we can come to the twelfth verse. Because in a very few words, Jesus here is summarized, is summarizing the, the great message of the three angels. 
Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Now, friends, if you begin to follow this scripture through, you'll understand the faith of Jesus is the key. If you have Jesus' faith, then you can have Jesus' patience. If you have Jesus' patience and Jesus' faith, you're going to keep the commandments. You see that? Jesus' faith and Jesus' patience gives you the power to keep the commandments of God. And as it is the catalyst in the everlasting gospel, it puts people in a position of where they can receive righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, and it also puts us in a position where we can be restored in God-likeness, and it also places in a relationship that we can receive the love of God. And we then can portray it to the world. Now, friends, every hereditary and every cultivated tendency to evil has to be done away with. God and you only know your weaknesses of character. Some of us were born with weaknesses. Some people were born with a, with a temper, with a disposition that that uh, very edgy and impatient and unkind. And uh, we have struggled for uh, a lifetime trying to bring that under control, but we still find ourselves getting angry and getting mad and blowing our top and, and saying things we wish we had never said. And finally, we have settled down with uh, what some people call good news because the good news, they say, is that you really can't do it. You can't overcome it. And uh, just don't worry about it anymore. If you blow your top a little bit, that's not, you can't help that. And the Lord overlooks it, and the Lord paid the price for our sins at Calvary, and that's all taken care of now. Don't worry about anything more. And my friends, that is the devil's biggest lie. The biggest lie of the devil is to put us to sleep with the idea that we can't overcome. And uh, friends, the, the, every hereditary and every cultivated weakness must be overcome. If we, have, uh, if we wake up in the morning cross and irritable, my friends, it's time that we ask God to take that all away. And as I read in volume 4, page uh, 86 and 84, we read this inspired statement from the Lord. It says... God's work of refining and purifying must go on until his servants are so humble, so dead to self, that when called into active service, their eye will be single to his glory. He will then accept their efforts. They will not move rashly from impulse. They will not rush on and imperil the Lord's cause, being slaves to temptation and passions and, and followers of their own carnal minds set on fire by Satan. Oh, how fearfully it is that the cause of God is marred by man's perverse will and unsubdued temper. How much suffering he brings upon himself and by following his own headstrong passions. God brings men over the ground again and again, increasing the pressure until perfect humility and a transformation of character bring them into harmony with Christ and the Spirit of heaven, and they are victors over themselves. And then on page 84. Would that you could understand that all this impatience and irritability must be overcome or your life will prove an utter failure. You will lose heaven and it would have been better that you have never been born. Many would have make, 
Money would make any and every sacrifice, but the very one they should make, which is to yield themselves to submit their wills to the will of God, said Christ to his <coughs> to his disciples, <coughs> except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here is a lesson in humility. We must all become humble as a little children in order to inherit the kingdom of God. So all irritability, all impatience, my friends, must become, and I want to confess to you, that's my greatest weakness. I want everything done yesterday. And uh, praise God, I've learned to overcome most of it. Occasionally I slip. But we must learn patience, the patience of Jesus, and the patience of Jesus, friends, can be ours. Do you believe that? The, 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 the tremendous faith that Jesus is offering to you today. He imputes it into your life. He gives it to you. It's a free gift. And with the faith of Jesus comes the patience of Jesus. And it's a daily, it's a daily fight that we must fight. We must work at it constantly. We must be conscious of our weaknesses. And immediately if we slip, immediately, immediately confess it. Conf- if we've lost our patience, immediately confess it. Whoever is present. You see, we sometimes just want to brush it aside and go on with it. And we, we, you know, we've been impatient with our wives or our husbands or our children. And we just brush it aside. But let me tell you, friends, you better confess it. And if you've been impatient to your husband or your wife or your children, you better say, I'm sorry, children. Mother's lost his patience. Father's lost his patience. Please forgive me. You'll never teach your children, my friends, unless you practice this in your life, in your homes. You've got to bring this into the home because they've got to learn it or they're going to destruct If children don't learn this, they're going to be destroyed. And we have to be bringing this in our own life so we can bring it to our families. We have to practice it in our own life. And if you fail, if you, if you, if you find yourself irritable, if you find yourself impatient, immediately confess it. And then confess it to the Lord. And the Lord will forgive you. And you'll find by doing this, you'll be stronger for the next one. And as you do it, you'll find that suddenly you'll wake up one day and find that that old irritability that you confronted all your life. You've had the victory over it. Praise God. Now, folks, this is the third angel's, three angels' messages. This is what the church has never understood. It's been a mystery. But God has opened the mystery to you. Do you believe that? God has opened the mystery to you. These messages are very precious messages. They're precious to heaven, and they're precious to the church. They're precious to all of us that understand it. We must practice it now by the power of God. And every morning when you awake, the first thing you've got to do is give your will to God. Before you begin to think about anything else, give your will to God. And immediately, when you give your will to God, you immediately have a fortress around you that's impregnable. We're going to talk about that right after this. And as we are in that relationship with God, all the power that Jesus used is your power to have victory in the life. Because he used, in Desire of Ages 664, he used no power, he used no qualities that you and I can have. If he had, if he'd done that, the whole pro- the problem of sin and salvation would have been for lost. You see, if he'd used power that you don't have, then he couldn't be your example. So he couldn't use any power that you don't have. That power was the Holy Spirit. He offers it to us today. 
Oh, may God help us to understand it, to use it, that we can have the victory that Jesus had. What do you say? Praise God. Shall we pray? God, we're grateful for these great messages, Lord. And God, as we go from this place, we pray that you will put the power into our lives to live it with all our heart and soul and mind and body. Help us to live with this great message. God, we pray for these people. God, we know that Satan is ever alive. And that Satan has come down to the faithful, loyal, and obedient to try to destroy us. And Lord, we pray, drive back the enemy now. Put a double guard about each one of us, Lord, and may we daily, we so live so carefully and so closely to Thee that we may have that great power and that we may have victory over every sin, every temptation, every weakness of character so that once, that soon, God, that we can have that great privilege of receiving the seal of the living God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.